Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. today's show there wasn't particularly an event date as such so I've gone with the year that a building first appeared on this particular site and that is 1882 and so we'll start off with January the 2nd when Irish-born author Oscar Wilde arrives in the United States for an extended lecture tour when asked by customs officials if he had anything to declare he replies I have nothing to declare but my genius Quite cheeky, isn't he? Anyway, February the 3rd, American shaman P.T. Barnum acquires the elephant Jumbo from the London Zoo. On March the 18th, the Principality of Serbia becomes the Kingdom of Serbia, following a proclamation. From July the 11th to the 13th, the British Mediterranean fleet, as part of the Anglo-Egyptian War, carries out the bombardment of Alexandria, its forces capturing the city of Alexandria, Egypt, and securing the Suez Canal. On August the 18th, the Married Women's Property Act in 1882 receives royal assent in Britain. It enables women to buy, own and sell property, and to keep their own earnings. And lastly, on December the 6th, saw the transit of Venus, the last until 2004. But today's show delves into the history of a building, that now stands quietly opposite a petrol station at the top of Park Row in the centre of Bristol. Right now it's easy to pass it by without taking a second look, but if you look into the history, you'll realise that it's more than just a building. It's had a lot of changes and a lot of history. Word of the Week. And this week, my friends, I give you... Octothorpe. Now, this is going to make you look clever in front of all your friends, because Octothorpe is another term for the hashtag symbol. If you go up Park Row in the centre of Bristol walking towards the Wheels Tower and the museum, 
you'll see on your right-hand side, on the corner of Woodland Road, a long, low-looking building opposite the petrol station. This building was originally an ice rink and cinema, but the site itself has so much history. In fact, it was also a circus. In the Bristol Mercury, dated Saturday the 18th of November, 1882, it was marvelled how, in a short space of time, a building, 112 feet long by 86 feet wide, able to seat 4,000 people, had been constructed by Sanger & Sons, a family with equestrian and entertainment connections. The last time this group had visited Bristol, they performed in the Drill Hall successfully for several months. They had several theatres around the country, like the Astley Theatre in London, and also some in Europe. So, with obvious demand for their skills in this area, it was a no-brainer that they should set up a more permanent venue for themselves. The interior was decked out brightly, in vermilion, ultramarine, bright green and gold, the ceiling was covered with a white cloth studded with stars and the slopes of the roof on either side were lined with broad alternate stripes of red, white and blue cloth. An important safety aspect was the fact that the building had three distinct entrances in the front and at the end of the performance the audience had an exit which was 12 feet wide. That was because it was specially constructed to allow Sorga's troop of elephants to enter the building. And using this at the end of the performance meant the building was cleared in a very short space of time. Incidentally, this piece of music playing in the background is actually called Barnum and Bailey's Favourite and was written by Carl King in 1913 specifically for Barnum's Circus, and is often referred to as the granddaddy of circus marches. The first performance by Sanger & Sons took place on Monday the 20th of November, 1882, and they had a lot of success. Eventually, four years later, the property was brought from Sanger by Sam Watson, another man with equestrian and entertainment connections, who renamed it the Circus of Varieties. The building was transformed in just four days by changing the ring into a pit and replacing the end gallery with a spacious stage. They had the likes of Wilmot and Brown performing, who claimed to be the champion bicyclists of the world, as well as gymnasts Mademoiselle Esque and Frank Volière, with Esque showing off her strength by the suspension of three men from her teeth and hands, whilst hanging by her feet. Miss Kitty Wren, hailed as the Syrio comic, brought the house down and Harry the Rocket King Freeman always got an enthusiastic round of applause for his comic songs. Arthur Lloyd and his wife, Catty King, are known to have performed at the Circus of Varieties on the 30th of May, 1887. The Bristol Mercury said, Circus of Varieties. Last night, this house proved a popular place of resort, 
the attendance being very large. The lessee, Mr. Sam Watson, has engaged a number of well-known artists, and the programme is an excellent one. Mr. Alfred C. Vance, the well-known comedian, has been re-engaged for another week, and the applause which greeted his reappearance testified that Mr. Vance is still a great favourite with Bristolians. Mr. Arthur Lloyd and Miss Catty King sing and dance well, and Mr. Oscar Duborg and Little Jim go through a number of remarkable feats in a large tank of water. Mr. Pat Carney and Mr. Barry Ryan soon gain the warm appreciation of the audience with their Irish songs. Mr. Torn Rootwell, known as the loose-legged comedian, executed some very clever eccentric dances, and Mr. Alvin T's ascents and descents on the silver cord are of such a character as to please those who are fond of sensationalism. Miss Vinnie Bishop and Miss and Miss Marie Britton, serio-comic vocalist, sing in a pleasing manner and aid in the success which attends the entertainment. <laughs> Word on the street. Seeing as we're talking about a building in this area, it would be rude not to talk about Park Row, which joins on to Park Street in the centre of Bristol. The street was built through Bullock's Park, part of the Tyndall's estate, during the Georgian period. Park Row used to be known as Griffin Lane. The development of Park Street began in 1740 when the city council leased land to Nathaniel Day, holder of Bullock's Park, to open a new street. Unfortunately, about a third of the buildings on Park Street suffered bombing on the 24th of November 1940 in the Bristol Blitz. 30 were destroyed, six burnt out and another three severely damaged. Nearly all were later rebuilt and restored. During World War II, Park Street was designated for white troops from the United States Army. On the evening of the 15th of July 1944, African-American soldiers entered the area and fighting broke out between about 400 soldiers. 120 military police broke up the fighting but one was stabbed. Several soldiers were shot and one died. The city was then placed under military curfew. In 1974, an IRA bombing injured 20 people. In 1976, a huge gas explosion destroyed some of the buildings near the bottom of the road. Most were rebuilt as replicas. When the Circus of Variety season ended on Saturday the 11th of June 1887, the building was sold three days later and workmen moved in to demolish it. It turns out that Sam Watson, who was by then on his way to America, had lost a fair amount of money. He worked hard to pay off his debts after suffering heavy losses from unlucky ventures. Now let's jump ahead to September 1910, when the Bristol Coliseum Public Hall and Skating Park was opened in a new building. The ice rink had a skating area of 360 feet by 100 feet and could also be adapted for public meetings or promenade concerts. Prices for admission were sixpence for ladies and ninepence for gentlemen and skaters. On occasion, the band of the Royal Marines would perform music for the ice skaters to dance to. Eventually, the band of the 6th Battalion Gloucestershire Regiment 
became the regular entertainers. The building would host such events as a military skating carnival and ball in December 1910, and the Bristol and West of England Exhibition of Arts and Industries from September to November 1911. In April 1911, the Colosseum Ice Rink was sold by auction for £15,400 and the purchasers were the holders of the Colosseum Company. The skating rink part of the building was converted into the Colosseum Picture Theatre. In keeping with the Victorian era's thirst for knowledge of the world, one of the first films shown here was the documentary about the South African Wild Animal Congress and American White City in January 1912. In February 1916, the Colosseum showed the first of a new series of Charlie Chaplin films, including Charlie at Work and Little Pal, which also had a young Mary Pickford playing the principal part of a Native American squaw. One visitor said... I went to the pictures only once at the Colosseum, and what I remember most about the place as a cinema were the inscriptions carved in the stonework beneath the balustrade. Drama, farce, comedy, travel, sport, history. The building went through many transformations in its life, and one of them may surprise you, given the fact that it's situated in the very centre of Bristol. In 1916, the Bristol-based Parnell & Sons shopfitters started to manufacture aircraft in the building, now called the Coliseum Works. During the First World War, this became the centre of their business, as skilled staff were being moved to sites around the city and in neighbouring South Gloucestershire, producing planes to their own designs, under contract, to those of other companies. In 1919, the aircraft part of the business was split from the parent company of Parnell & Sons and became George Parnell & Company. By the mid-1920s, it became pretty obvious that an aircraft factory in the middle of the town wasn't a great idea insofar as test flying was concerned. They were using Filton Airfield, which was quite far away. And so, in 1925, the firm expanded by acquiring the buildings and aerodrome in Yate, which was used by the Royal Flying Corps. There, they built hangars, which they used to continue building their aeroplanes. Rumour has it that money was so tight at that time that George Parnell would only allow a central strip for the runway to be mowed as he needed the profit from the hay crop. The Colosseum was badly damaged by German bombs in 1940 in the Bristol Blitz during World War II, but remained intact, unlike the Prince's Theatre that had been on the opposite side of the road and was completely destroyed. After Parnell left, the building continued to be put to use locally. For example, in July 1933, a short-term let was organised for the Imperial Fruit Show and Cannons Exhibition. The building went on to host many events, including the annual Bristol Grocers Exhibition, as well as performances by Her Majesty's Royal Marines and art displays. 
It was also used at the dance hall, hosting many themed events. The Colosseum structure still stands and has now been converted into a building as part of the engineering department of Bristol University. Now this next bit is exclusive to the podcast and it concerns one of the regular entertainers at the Colosseum. His name was Anton Blazer and he was already a success when he arrived in this country. A talented pianist, he had studied at the conservatory in Rotterdam and gone on a successful concert tour of the continent. Now in his 30s, he had set up home in Bristol with a woman who would one day be his wife. Anton's home was in the Clifton area of the city on Woodland Road in Tyndall's Park and he also had rooms in a lofty old house on Exeter Buildings in Redland. It was there that he advertised himself as a professor of the piano and gave music lessons and the odd recital. By the autumn of 1912, he also had more regular employment as the pianist at the Colosseum Picture Theatre, which wasn't far from where he lived. At first, Anton simply accompanied the silent films, but gradually, however, he became more confident and his fame grew and he was asked to perform during the intervals as well. Before long, he had been joined by a little band of musicians who would now accompany him as he played his own arrangements of Bizet and Litz. None of this escaped the attention of the press. One newspaper wrote, The music of the Colosseum has always been a special feature, and under the direction of Herr Blazer, it has been brought to a particularly high standard. And as his fame grew, so did his band. On the eve of the Great War, it was being billed as Herr Anton Blazer's premier cinema orchestra. Although with hindsight, using the title Herr was perhaps not the wisest choice. The Colosseum was by now very popular. The management advertised that it was only a penny tram ride from Zetland Road and a penny bus fare from Sussex Place. Admission would cost as little as sixpence. There were continuous performances throughout the afternoon and evening and afternoon teas were available to everyone between 4 and 5pm. August 1914 was a significant month there. On the very day war broke out, there was a showing of Kid Auto Races at Venice the first film to feature Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp character. While later, the main feature would be In the Bishop's Carriage. This eagerly awaited film was Mary Pickford's first, after her break from the biopic company and director D.W. Griffith. She played a woman who, according to a review, is falsely accused and cruelly punished, which is a premise that came painfully to life for Anton. You see, it all began with a letter someone claimed to have found lying in the middle of Small Street, not far from the Colosseum, on the 20th of August of that year, in the very first days of the war. The letter was addressed to Herr Anton Blazer, and it stated that his presence was requested at a certain place in Bishopston, adding that there was an agenda, the demolition of Horfield Barracks. It contained details of a plan to bomb the barracks, which was itself only a penny tram ride from his home. 
the authorities were duly alerted, and the rumour went around Bristol that Anton, who was then aged 34, was really German and merely passing himself off as Dutch. He was arrested at his lodgings in Lower Redland, taken to the police station on Bridewell Street, and then brought up in the court next door. His lodgings were searched and the police found a camera and a revolver, as well as printed documents containing information of British ports and ports in the colonies. They also found a letter written in German that had been sent to Anton in 1910. Under laws hastily introduced in the last few days, he was accused of failing to register as an alien, and he was also accused of offences connected to the letter and the terrifying plan it described. Mr J Green from the town clerk's office appeared to prosecute and Mr E J Watson appeared for the defendant. Mr Watson said that it fell to the defendant to prove his nationality. Herr Blazer was locked up for nearly a fortnight before contact was finally made with the Rotterdam police and his brother travelled over to Bristol at great risk to himself. Remember, this was during the Great War. The next time Anton appeared in court, he heard the prosecution concede that he was Dutch, not German, and that it hadn't been necessary for him to register at all. It was also conceded that the small street letter had been a hoax. The prosecutor announced that no evidence was to be offered against Anton, and the last thing he heard was the magistrate say he was a free man. Anton's solicitor, Mr Watson, said... This was a dastardly thing to do at such a time as the present. The letter was dropped for a purpose, and I'm sure the police and Mr Green will help me bring the real culprit to book. Holland was at peace with all the world, and it was the object of the people not to strain the situation, but to make friends rather than enemies. The defendant respects England and has his living here. No one ever explained who sent the letter or why. Within days, however, Anton Blazer had left Britain and returned to Holland. In the years that followed, he would become an eminent performer, teacher and composer of music, and some of the music he composed would end up in films. He died in Rotterdam, just after the Second World War. Hi, I'm Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-time depression sufferer, and caffeine fiend. In Not Before Coffee, I talk about everything from books, TV and movies to the more serious topics, like my own personal journey through life, struggling with various mental health issues. But not until I've had at least three mugs of the roasted bean and temporarily sated my long-term addiction. So, if you want to get to know more about me and all the ways I pass my time during the week, not including work, and you fancy the idea of hearing me talk about the things that interest me, new books, old books, TV and movies of all kinds, plus the weird and wonderful of my everyday, and how I got into writing about cars for a living, despite not having a driving licence, then tune in to Not Before Coffee. Found where all good podcasts are. So pretty much everywhere. Thank you.
today, NASA is about to launch a new mission to say sorry to aliens for Earth polluting space. It's called Apollo G. Back in the day facts. Right, let's start with the 9th of September 1588, when Thomas Cavendish, in his ship Desire, enters Plymouth and completes the first deliberately planned voyage of circumnavigation. Having set out with his three ships, the English raided three Spanish settlements and captured or burned 13 ships. Among these was a rich 600-ton sailing ship, a Manila galleon called Santa Ana, with the biggest treasure haul that ever fell into English hands. With only one ship left, Cavendish returned to England on the 9th of September 1588, completing a full navigation of the Earth in record time. This voyage was hugely successful and made Cavendish a very rich man from captured Spanish gold silk and treasure from the Pacific and the Spanish Philippines. Cavendish was subsequently knighted by Queen Elizabeth I. On the 10th of September 1961, in the Italian Grand Prix, a crash causes the death of German Formula One driver Wolfgang von Trips and 15 spectators who were hit by his Ferrari, the deadliest accident in Formula One history. On the 11th of September, 1789, Alexander Hamilton is appointed the first United States Secretary of the Treasury. On the 12th of September, 1943, during World War II, Benito Mussolini is rescued from house arrest by German commando forces, led by Otto Scorzini. On the 13th of September, 1985, Super Mario Bros. is released in Japan for the Nintendo, which starts the Super Mario series of platforming games. The 14th of September, 1682, sees Bishop Gore School, one of the oldest schools in Wales, founded. The school was endowed and established as a free grammar school by Hugh Gore, Bishop of Waterford and Lismore, for the gratuitous instruction of 20 boys, sons of the most indigent burgesses, and in the event of a dissolution of the corporation, to sons of the poorest inhabitants of the town. And lastly, on the 15th of September 1954, Marilyn Monroe's iconic skirt scene is shot during filming for the seven-year itch. Well, I'm afraid that that's the end of today's podcast. And a huge thank you has to go out to those who brought today's story to life. And this week we have Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Molly Jeffries and Joe Wilson from St Stephen's Drama Group, right here in Bristol. Thank you, one and all. I also have to thank David Hewitt, a lawyer and writer who kindly sent in the story of Anton Blazer, which led me on an adventure discovering more about the building that Anton worked in. David's latest book, Gold, Violet, Black, Crimson, White, is out now and is about a Great War court case provoked by a silent film many people considered obscene. It's published by Matador and is available at 11 99 
One last thing. If you're interested in any Backtracker-related merchandise, just pop over to tpublic.com and type in Backtracker, and you should find a whole host of things that you can buy, from T-shirts to stickers, just in time for Christmas. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. (laughs) 